This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. On this episode, we continue focusing on supporting kinship caregivers, and we'll talk with a few folks who saw a dramatic increase in the percentage of caregivers taking advantage of services and resources they're eligible for. Hello, everyone. Tom Oates from Information Gateway here, and welcome to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast series. We really hope you're enjoying hearing from those across the country share their projects, their ideas, and perspectives. Plus, We hope you're able to take some of their lessons learned and apply them to your own practice. So as we mentioned, this is part two of our two-part series on supporting kinship caregivers. Back in part one, we connected with Children's Bureau grantees in California who developed a self-serve online portal that gave kinship families a single point of access to resources to help with education and daily living expenses. If you haven't listened to that conversation, I encourage you to do so. It's listed under podcasts within the Children's Bureau's website. That's acf.hhs.gov slash CB. So in part two, we're highlighting a project out of the Tampa Bay area of Florida, initially designed to increase access to Temporary Assistance for Needy Family, or TANF, funds for kinship caregivers. These grantees applied a three-pronged approach to address the needs, including using trained peers to serve as one-on-one navigators to help families apply for assistance and provide emotional support and guidance along the way. You're going to hear both about the project itself the approach to address the problem, and how it was implemented. Plus, we'll talk about the findings and the evaluation, which involved a pretty deep random control trial. So we're going to hear from Larry Cooper. He is from Children's Home, Inc., and he served as the project director. Now, Children's Home has been dealing with kinship caregivers for more than 15 years. And we're also going to be joined by Dr. Carrie Littlewood from AAJ Research and Evaluation, and she conducted the evaluation. Both of them joined me to talk about the Kinship Interdisciplinary Navigation Technology Advanced Model, otherwise known as Kintech. So, Larry, let's begin with you here. Um, We understand that there is this gap between kinship caregivers and and those services that are available, and there are many reasons for for that gap. So talk to me about what you were experiencing and the problem that you were trying to address in, in the Tampa area in Florida. Okay, we looked at two counties in West Central Florida, uh, Pinellas County, which is primarily Clearwater and St. Petersburg, and then Hillsborough County, which is primarily Tampa. And so they're two very large um, suburban, uh, urban areas with a lot of caregivers with a variety of different needs. And so Florida is actually third in the country in the number of children being raised by grandparents. Uh, Obviously, we have a large number of seniors, just by definition, being in Florida. Uh, We also have a lot of families moving into Florida every year. And we also have a lot of, uh, we have fairly low median income uh, here in the Tampa Bay area. So we have uh, poverty, considerable poverty issues here in the the Tampa Bay area. That was one of the big factors uh, that we recognized. So the federal grant asked us to really consider why kids were not receiving 
public benefits that they were eligible for because the national average for uh, TANF, which is temporary assistance to needy families, which was a form of cash assistance, uh, only about 11% of eligible children were receiving this benefit. Um, when 100% of them are eligible for some sort of cash assistance if you're a relative caregiver. So we looked at that as one of the, the main components of this project. Uh, we also had the opportunity because of our experience with kinship caregivers that we wanted to hire kin caregivers as peer-to-peer -peer navigators to support uh, other relatives in this journey of caregiving uh, to help them through some of their experiences to uh, navigate services and, and systems. Uh, and then we added a third component, which was there's so many domains that they touch, so many areas of service that they need. Uh, one of the other features that we wanted to design in this model was the interdisciplinary team meetings, which was set up conveniently for the caregiver because they are affected by multiple domains, multiple is system issues such as uh, education, uh, child welfare, legal issues, uh, could be housing, it could be mental health. Um, so we were able to conveniently bring these folks together in a phone conference with the navigator and the caregiver to help them kind of navigate through system issues that were really a barrier to them getting services. So that really was a, an added component that we put into the project. So you've got these kind of three components that you're able to, to provide uh, at various levels and at various kind of inputs for the caregiver. Now, Carrie Littlewood, let me ask you up front, from the initial research that was done for, for this project, what were those key barriers that you were trying to solve? What was stopping that, I guess, that, that other 89% from accessing those resources? Right. There are a lot of barriers uh, to accessing services. A lot of what Larry talked about in terms of uh, system issues, kind of um, folks work, working in silos and not necessarily collaborating um, is also a barrier when you're working with um, kinship families because they have to um, contact so many different types of service delivery systems in order to get what they what they need. Um, um, other barriers are really knowing about the services. There's also some reluctance about enrolling for services and backlash for the biological parent. So are it by by enrolling, will they then um, have to deal with the biological parent who may get their child support disrupted or may um, already be collecting child-only TANF. And some of those things that are really unique to kinship families. Um, so the education, the system barriers. Also, I think being busy with life and having a new situation and all of a sudden having to raise children and not doing that in a long time, I think uh, there's the fear, there's kind of this um, overwhelming feeling that um, that also brings about kind of, you know, mistrust in systems. Um, so all of those things, I think, combined are what uh, kinship families and especially kinship caregivers who need to access services really are dealing with, just these multiple 
issues. So with all this, I guess, in a system of barriers, almost, Larry, you, you have this kind of three-pronged approach. How did the implementation of those approaches then address kind of the, the I guess, the, the myriad barriers that you had to tackle? Yeah, I think in even in addition to what uh, Carrie mentioned, we had the technology barrier for caregivers. We had we interviewed caregivers, we interviewed professionals that typically assist with benefit applications uh, from child welfare and from the Department of Children and Families, and found that there was there were issues of completing the application online because Florida had moved to a technology-based application system. You could still get an application, but what they did a paper application, but what they did is they eliminated most of the field offices where you could get assistance. Uh, they brought it into maybe a centralized location, which made it difficult for many families to access. Um, they might have a computer, but not know how to access the application. Uh, many people said it might take an hour to two hours to complete as long as they had all the information that they needed. Um, and then even the child welfare people and challenging to get all the way through the application with maybe the internet you know, or the application locking up or their system freezing or getting kicked off of the site and those kind of just you know electronic barriers uh, once they got to the application that they needed. So back to your question of how did we design this, really we, we put our navigators, that peer-to-peer -peer with a, a portable computer um, in the field and said, you know, here's somebody who's been through this, who's faced some of these challenges and could help them alleviate some of the issues of trust with systems by saying, hey, I'm a caregiver. I did this. This was a real benefit to me and the kids that I raised. And I'm going to help you sit down and collect the information that you need, complete this application. And then if we get stuck, we have a community partner that we could pick up the phone and call directly that will help us. Uh, navigate through this application process. So we put so, those pieces in place. So if I'm reading this right, as much as there is a technology component, but this was really a big outreach plan to create that greater connection, person to person, the peer network, and then through you know the, the, this, this team approach as well. So you're supporting both the caregiver and the, the, the child welfare professional really with knowledge and staff and connection versus just kind of giving something technology-wise that should make things easier. I mean, as much as the, the nickname here is Kintech, this is really much more of, of, of a targeted outreach program, it sounds to me. Am, am I pulling on that right? Yeah, I think the way I look at it is more customer service, customer-friendly service with, a hand, with that really warm, uh, handoff approach where, you know, the caregivers like caregivers that are so overwhelmed, professionals are good at providing referrals and resources, but not always how do you actually get that resource in your hand and connect with the service that you actually need. And so we just assume that if we put it in their hand, magically they'll have gotten the service. And what we found is the reality is that that doesn't happen especially with this population where you have caregivers who are disabled, uh, struggling to manage work uh, in the middle of this, they're maybe in the middle or at the end of their career. 
uh, and trying to navigate those things and now try to pick up these additional responsibilities with the children. So yeah, I think it's more of a hands-on customer service approach to working with caregivers, which enhances the trust level, that enhances the ability to actually receive the, the critical services that they need to sustain the family and the children that they're taking care of. So we can kind of help them move past the basic needs and then address some of those advanced concerns that social workers like myself have, which are grief and trauma, loss issues, uh, a variety of the more uh, traumatic issues that the kids are experiencing as they've moved away from their parents due to some type of abuse or neglect. And now grandparents and relatives are stepping in to figure out this complex set of needs. I think sometimes people uh, minimize the complexity that these caregivers are having to work their way through. And for us, once we can get through the basic needs more safely and simply with coordination of these partners, we can then get to some of these bigger, uh, higher level needs and issues. You know, I, I want to touch base on that that kind of coordination of, of all those groups and those partners, because that's no easy feat. Um, but the, the peer navigators, the peer to peer, because, you know, we've done some other podcasts about, you know, a, a parent partner network. And it seems very, very effective to have somebody who doesn't, quote unquote, represent a system, but it's someone who says, listen, I've been where you are or I understand your position. How did you go about recruiting and then training? Those 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 peers that really seem to be kind of boots on the ground, you know, hand in hand working with with your caregivers. Um, yeah. So I think for us, you know, we we knew because we've been working with kinship caregivers now for over 15 years that we knew that there were a real cadre of expert caregivers out there who have stayed connected to our programs over the years in support groups in roles working within the program as support group assistants themselves. So we knew we had some uh, out there. invited them to apply for these positions, uh, families that we had worked with successfully over the years. And we really put together an extensive amount of upfront training. And we had to really add in a lot of um, ongoing training and supervision for these folks because they were paraprofessionals. And so they were going to see some things that were pretty complex, even though some of the requests were for basic needs, food, shelter, clothing, bedding. Uh, they found themselves faced with some really complex family dynamics. So we had to provide them the kind of support that we knew that they needed. But as you said, they really provided a, a safe uh, peer support network to these other caregivers to be more willing, more interested to engage in an in-home service and to engage in to help develop their uh support network, increase their knowledge of what was happening in the community because the support groups offered a lot of knowledge, uh, resource testing, so to speak, in the sense that a caregiver can say, hey, I went to this therapist and he was great. You should check this out. Or we went to this closed closet at this facility here and they were so nice to us and they treated us well. So they really were sharing those really vetted out uh, resources that they could then share with one another that really made their job navigating much easier and hopefully uh, less challenging with all of the other things that they had to tackle. In, in providing support to those, those peers, 
how much extra work or maybe unexpected work did your staff have to have to have to go through to just to make sure that you know when those folks called you with a problem that you're able to turn around and and kind of help that need as quickly as you can I'm really glad you asked that question because that's a question that we're, we're able to actually look at the evaluation results and really uh, give you uh, some more uh, precision about uh, what we found. Um, as you know, one of the main goals for the project is really to connect these caregivers to TANF, child only, those that are eligible. Um, and one of the uh, important findings that we found is that the peers were actually more successful in connecting uh, caregivers to TANF than, than the professionals who were providing similar services. And um, so the peer-to-peer the -peer su support um, workers were actually um, more successful at higher application rates and also higher enrollment rates for TANF. And the other piece that you had mentioned um, was kind of the differences that we're seeing, especially about supervision for some of these peers is um, we're able to track some of the services that were being provided by the peers and also the, the professionals. Uh, and by professionals, I just mean that they have a BSW, at least a BSW um, or higher degree, and have been employed by um, by the Children's Home or the uh, Child Welfare Agency, um, and not not hired specifically as a peer to peer because of their um, previous relationship uh, as a as a caregiver. Um, we found that that peers needed. 10 times the amount of supervision than the professionals. And um, so I think for every one hour that a professional needed to uh, have that supervision, the peers needed 10. And a lot of that I think had to do with some of these complex cases, some of these cases that involve things like child sexual abuse or had some uh, legal issues connected with mental health issues, connected with just uh, some really extensive family dynamics and family issues that they weren't necessarily equipped and needed that support and supervision. So, so while the cost we're finding of the of the peers is is definitely less, uh, they really need to be supported by that by that supervision and to have that. And another thing that we found is that perhaps, perhaps a risk assessment at the very beginning could better streamline those caregivers who just need connection to services and not necessarily uh, help with complex issues. So we could maybe streamline them, uh, those uh, families that, that need connection to really work with the peers uh, better. I think that that would save time and perhaps cost. Yeah, one of the things that we grappled with was the the acuity of a case coming in the front door. How do we assess it at the front? Say this is really complex. How do we divert this to a experienced case manager? How does this person who has basic navigation needs get connected to the, the navigator uh, so we could best use their time and their skill set? 
um, for the type of cases coming in the front door. So the study really gave us the opportunity to, to look at that. We didn't necessarily change our model in the middle because we really wanted to, to kind of capture that in the full scope of the three years of the project and then be able to make recommendations going forward. Uh, one thing I wanted to add to what Carrie said was with, uh, the local uh, Department of Children and Families and, and the technology folks to sit down with the navigators to teach them literally screen by screen how to work through the application and then again have that direct link to a liaison that they could pick up the phone while they're sitting on the application and call in and get somebody to help them. Hey, I'm on screen seven. Can you help me figure out what I need to put in box number two because it's telling me this. And so it really helped them and the caregiver feel like, wow, they, they're really able to support me. I didn't have to stop what I was doing and make 15 phone calls to figure that out or sit on hold for an hour on a call-in center to figure out how do I do this, they were able to get a direct line to somebody who could help them. And so we, as you had asked about, made sure that training was there up front and then a link to a key person to help them when they did come against a barrier or a question that they didn't have the answer for. So that really, to me, was spectacular. And I was really surprised how well the Department of Children and Families uh, partnered with us on data collection, navigating barriers with these applications. And when we looked at the results, the results were there that we had increased the rate of applications to 75% completion on apps and over 50% uh, enrollment into these benefits where the nationwide number and our local numbers were like 11 to 15% enrollment just on their own or with the traditional set of services that the community had to offer. You know, those are great, great points to pull apart and kind of those key lessons you learned along the way that, you know, if there's another agency or another community that's thinking about how can we improve, you know, reduce that gap, those are great things to, to take away. And so I'm glad you guys brought that up. You also mentioned, Larry, just there about, you know, partnering not only with, with uh, the, the state, but, you know, so many different communities in, or organizations within the community. You've got a, a partner list that, that goes, you know, into double digits organizing that, communicating across the board, making sure everybody feels like they are part and they are engaged and can contribute. That, you know, that's a project in amongst itself. Where did, how did that come about and where were the success points that you found that were, 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 were vital to getting those partnerships to, to flourish? I'm so glad you brought that up because that, that is so important. And um, as Larry mentioned, They've been doing kinship in the community for about 15 years now. And um, since the very beginning, they had started these um, kinship community collaboratives in each of the counties where they brought in education and health and legal and all of these systems together. And uh, when, they, when you start something 15 years ago and then you meet monthly, and then you have actively engaged participation with just a cadre of different types of uh, community folks and caregivers themselves. I think um, that kind of engagement, that long lasting, you're building trust and you're also just building this engagement. Um, 
and also the education piece, how eligibility changes, uh, agencies change, funding changes, but yet this particular collaboration has stayed, um, you know, as part of the sustainability piece that's always been there. So that I think has just been incredibly effective. And it's also actually, I think, one of the reasons why we were able to implement a randomized control trial for the evaluation. Because uh, I've been working with Children's Home now for over 12 to 13 years and as an evaluator on kinship services. So, so I think this relationship of of bringing the results, talking with Larry, talking with the community collaborative and saying, this is what we're finding. How can we improve our practice? How can we take these and become better? That's been kind of the story all along. So when it came time to do something more rigorous, the buy-in was already there. So I could see that maybe a new community would not be able to implement something as rigorous because it's the relationship building piece is so essential to that. So um, I think all of those work together so nicely in that um, it's all so relationship-based mm -hmm. and, and also having that history and the trust that you build. It sounds like, you know, we all have these informal relationships that you have, and maybe it's not at the top level of your agency. Maybe it's at, it could be at the grassroots, but kind of taking advantage of those little those, those uh, the trusts and the relationships that you already have, and they may be informal, but it at least brings folks to the table to then make something that's a little bit more structured. And you kind of, like you said, you've already got people with their foot in the door. So, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a key takeaway for someone looking to do this uh, across the country is look what you already have in your back pockets. They may not be a structured on paper agreement, but if you know a few folks across the hall or in different agencies, it's easy to knock on the door and say, hey, neighbor, you know, let's think about something big. Um, so, Carrie, let's let's start to pull around. You know, Larry talked about the, the the change in applications. If you're to look at this after the, the evaluation, you know, so so what worked and what would you do differently based on what you were able to find? So I think uh, I think a big takeaway is to have developed some kind of assessment at intake that could better stream, could better assess the acuity of need and then being able to assign that family to work with either a peer or work with a professional. I think that that would be um, a better use of resources. Um, and also I think it'd be more effective. We're finding that, that the peers are incredibly effective at connecting caregivers to TANF and other, other tangible resources. And we're also finding that the professionals are great at, at managing complex family issues that occur that are specific to really kinship and the dynamics among different family members. Um, so I think that was a big, that was a big piece uh, a big take home. Um, the other take home, I think, is that um, is that supervision piece to have to have ongoing support for the peers was very important. 
the peers need to feel supported and they need to feel they have a place to go. If they, if they get stuck, um, they also need to feel part of the service delivery system, an equal part. And I think, um, I think that when they feel empowered, that empowerment transfers to the, the caregivers and families that they're working with. And it's also uh, a really great modeling tool for caregivers that they're working with. Like, hey, here's a peer that's actually doing this work and they were successful. They went through the same things I did. How, how did you do that? You know, can you talk to me about that? Can you, can you do things? Um, so uh, we also found a lot of unexpected needs one of the things we found after looking at family needs for the last, you know, 15 years has been that um, the housing need has just the last two to three years has just uh, has just increased and has been become very pervasive, especially in this area. Uh, this area has had high foreclosure rates from uh, 2008 crisis. But now we're we're just starting to see how that's impacted families. Um, so um, that was that was a finding. Another finding um, is that we had partnered with um, uh, looking at some health issues for uh, caregivers, and also uh, partnered with uh, a physician scientists that specializes in um, sleep. And one of the things that we found out was that uh, caregivers were having a lot of troubled sleep. There were also caregiving for children that have troubled sleep. And um, we look at uh, health holistically, and it's not only diet and exercise, but it's self-care for these caregivers. So uh, we're concerned that you have a caregiver that is having trouble sleeping. You have a child that's getting up in the middle of the night having trouble sleeping. You know, what kinds of things can we do uh, from an intervention perspective to really help that, especially the child who has experienced trauma? What is the best way to uh, promote sleep uh, and healthy development? Um, we also found that sleep was associated with um, some psychosocial problems for the children. So uh, the children were, um, it, the children who were experiencing uh, troubled sleep were also those children who were having worse externalizing and internalizing problem behaviors and also some attention problems. So um, we're, we're looking more closely at those kinds of things that, that we, can, um, we can work on from an intervention perspective and then hopefully help some of the health and well-being for the caregiver and also the child. So what kinds of things can we do um, with peers? What kinds of things can we do from, from professionals? It really gives you a lot of data that then you can say, as we sustain this and as we move this forward, what else or what other partners maybe want to bring in to when you need some specialized help, as you're mentioning, either, you know, that whole holistic approach, be it a mental health or be it, you know, a, there's a physical aspect and you know, emotional. And you mentioned the entire you know, trauma based uh, based care. So, Larry, you've got these peers who you mentioned, you're dealing with a senior community. 
that age is going to get up there. You're also going to have to maybe potentially deal with burnout in dealing with this. How do you sustain this program over time, knowing that the partners and the and and the organizations and groups, you know, that's what they're there for. But you've got this peer cadre that you're going to have to constantly worry about turnover. How do you sustain this over time? Well, I think um, the support network that we've developed for families really allows them to kind of get re-energized, get involved in a variety of things. So we have any given month between uh, 10 and 15 support groups just in two counties that families can step into either daytime or evening to fit their schedule to participate in and get kind of that lift, that support from a peer, learn information or just sit and have a meal with. Uh, we offer, you know, let's say, for example, a, a lunch meeting for the caregivers to sit together over a meal and kind of share and support each other. Uh, we do family uh, activities on the weekends where uh, families can kind of join together and kids are seeing other kids that they didn't even realize were also being raised by a relative. And then caregivers have gone with us to Tallahassee. They've gone with us to Washington, D.C., uh, to tell their story. And I think the more that they get to tell their story, they get really energized by the response because most people aren't even aware to, to the issue, to the complexities of it, to the impact. Uh, and that many times there's these myths about caregivers that they are maybe part of the problem. You know, they're only impoverished families who you know, had problems themselves and they were the cause of the biological parent to have these difficulties. But as we've seen, you know, caregivers can come from all socioeconomic uh, areas. Uh, They caregiver, you know, parents have raised, let's say four children and three of them successfully and one connected up with uh, a bad crowd, got involved with drugs or had a mental health problem that uh, was a a genetically predisposed predisposed to, uh, just a variety of things that they could not control, regardless of how successful the family was. And it led to a caregiving uh, situation, or as Carrie said, the the financial downturn in the economy led many families to cohabitate and have multi-generational households um, to create this scenario. So I think this, the constant recognition that we have to support the caregivers, there's always so many resources for children out there. Um, it's more, I think, uh, attractive to funders and to private donors to help children uh, at risk. But we don't always think about the caregiver who's caring for an 80-year-old uh, family member or maybe doing both, raising children and taking care of a, a senior family member. And how do we really care for those caregivers? Because we know the impact on them is significant uh, when we look at the statistics. And I think for us, being able to put the numbers and the evidence together, when we go out and share the story, really makes the case. Because many times we can say, anecdotally, we know that this stuff happens, but now we have such a huge study and uh, and we've had other uh, uh, research that we've had published that has had such significant numbers that allows us to really say confidently, you know, here's what we found. Here's what you're we're seeing in your community, and we should really take notice of this. And I think that that's gotten a real great response from the the local funders that we partner with 
to really sustain the practice. And I know you mentioned about sustainability, but we've really engaged the funders to come to every partnership meeting, to hear the results, to hear the impact of their matching dollars uh, with this with these other funding opportunities from grants. And it allows them to really feel invested in the results, especially when you produce the kind of results that we have and the significant numbers that we can show that really strengthens uh, the value of what we're offering to, to families. So um, just alongside that, we have, for Kintec, we have over 1,500 uh, caregivers that uh, have uh, enrolled and are part of the study. But we've also found uh, that Kintec and our standard care is really at such a lower cost than even just bringing a child into usual care, which is uh, out of home care with a non-relative or into congregate care. So if we um, compare the costs of of Kintec or a family support case management program for Kin, we're looking at 100% less, less uh, cost to run a program that's actually, we like to think of it, I think is more prevention. Mm -hmm. so, so we're preventing that, but also uh, providing service and intervention to the, to the caregivers. Oh yeah. Families, so. When you look at the cost uh, of care for foster care, for group care, it's outrageous. And then the length of time that they're going to be in that level of care is far longer uh, costly to the state, to the community. When we can place with a relative, many times based on the census data, we're seeing that caregivers are raising these children five or more years uh, and many times into adulthood. And so for kids that exit foster care at 18, many times they end up homeless, they end up uh, disconnected from their family systems where relatives really allow children to maintain those family connections. Even with that biological parent who may be out there struggling with mental illness or substance abuse, they still get to maintain some semblance of a relationship to whatever degree that parent can stay connected where in foster care, there's this uh, really uh, difficult challenge for the system and for families to stay connected from siblings being placed together, from relatives being able to know where these children are in these systems of care. Uh, many times children are moved to other counties far away from their home community because of the problems of capacity in the foster care systems. There's a lack of foster homes. They can never maintain and sustain enough homes to keep kids even in their own communities and sometimes have to be placed, uh, you know, miles, you know, a number of miles away. Sometimes I, we just, you know, hear of things where kids going to actually other states for higher levels of care uh, in other communities because they can't find it in their home community. And again, far away from family, far away from siblings. Uh, and so the long-term impact of that is devastating for families. And we haven't even touched on proportionate number of minorities and disadvantaged families of color that are overpopulated into our foster care systems that don't have the same kinds of supports when they enter into the system. They might likely end up in a home that doesn't look like theirs in a different community with people that don't look like them. 
that don't practice the same religion, don't have the same culture. Uh, and those are huge losses for children uh, that we don't even think about because for child welfare, we're worried about a safe home at that moment uh, for that child. And we don't always think about the long lasting impact of systems on children of color and race and overrepresentation. So Florida places 40, around 46% of their out-of-home care to relatives. However, Florida is also unique in that we don't license kinship family or kinship mm -hmm. caregivers. So we don't license them into being a approved home. So 46%, but also those are not licensed. Mm -hmm. um, so these kinds of programs are really community-based and support that placement that doesn't necessarily have that licensure, that education that other states might have to really prevent disruption of the placement. So I think that's an important piece in terms of Florida being unique in that way. So you've got yourself a connection to the community, maintaining the family connection, and it's such a lower investment for stability, which has such a, a, a high rate of return when it comes to what is best for, for the children and families. Dr. Carrie Littlewood, uh, Larry Cooper, I, I appreciate you so much uh, for, for sharing your story and, and sharing what you've learned and, and being able to maybe we can replicate things like this or, or take some, some of those key nuggets away and, and kind of seeing this spread as we can try to make a difference as we're continuing to do across the nation. Guys, I thank you guys so much. Thank you. So in our current state, where so much business and communication is done through rapid and mobile systems and technology, here's an approach that succeeds while, yes, utilizing technology, but through personal relationships and longstanding connections. Both Larry Cooper and Dr. Littlewood have already connected with a few other states around the country to provide some insight into both the Kintech program's application and its evaluation. For more regarding kinship care, you can check out this podcast page on the Children's Bureau website. Just go to acf.hhs.gov cb and search podcasts. We've put up a site visit report about Kintech along with links to an information gateway publication, Kinship Care and the Child Welfare System, along with a link to Gateway's web section specifically dedicated to Kinship Care. And I'll remind you to go to childwelfare.gov and visit Information Gateway. It's the most comprehensive collection of timely and relevant resources, tools, best practices, contact information, and data surrounding the entire continuum of child welfare. You can also visit the out-of-home care section and find a complete microsite dedicated to National Foster Care Month, which is available all year long. We're having a lot of fun bringing you these episodes and providing another way for you to hear from and learn about some of the great impacts being made across the country. If you've got an idea for a future podcast, let us know and drop us a line at info at childwelfare.gov. So thanks again for listening and stay tuned for more episodes of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. I'm Tom Oates, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. 
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.